The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We meet Mike Crack, boss of F1's most upwardly mobile team, and Gary talks about DRS trouble, factory moves, and fuel saving. The Azerbaijan Grand Prix action may have been a little bit flat on track, but there's always technical talking points in F1, and delving into those is exactly what the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco, is all about. I'm Ed Straw, and I'm joined, as always, by Gary Anderson, who, as we discussed in the last episode, just marked the anniversary of 50 years in and around the F1 paddock, which is a remarkable achievement. Perhaps not the most memorable of races to celebrate, was it? Uh, not really. I mean, I enjoyed the uh, the, the start, the first couple of laps, a bit of argy-bargy going on. Um, it was nice to see you know, the car survive that as well. Um, but uh, in general, once it sort of the the... the, the cars got a bit of distance between them that was it. it just you know they stayed there um it was what it was a it's a difficult track i think because it's 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 not that it's narrow but it's not wide and the, the walls beside it you know and the way the walls come out around each corner it's sort of very very difficult to um to just sort of dive down the inside of somebody because you're never quite sure how, how it's going to end and as we saw you know most people that did clip the wall had fairly serious consequences um except for the guys that finished first and second i think yeah <laughs> funny that that's the way it is you know as i say on a street circuit you've got to be brushing the wall but then that's about it you don't want to go anymore and you're talking about you know you're talking about a couple of centimeters of difference from uh wiping a corner off or just getting a tire mark on the on the um the advertising banners so it, it wasn't the most interesting race but at the end of the day um we have to accept that there is going to be tracks like that and just accept it. And, you know, the DRS, which uh, I think is the best thing we could have a chat about, obviously played a big role in it, to be honest. Yes, well, you've slightly preempted our next thing, which will be your traditional, your choice of topic. So it was the Aston Martin DRS, wasn't it? That was quite an interesting thing over the weekend, the problems they were having with it, because it perhaps wasn't what you might consider a, a normal DRS thing, i.e. it mechanically isn't working. There was something more to it than that. Yeah, it, it looked like that because it wasn't an easy fix. You know, normally if it's a mechanical problem, um, it's just a matter of taking the thing apart and making sure everything's working correctly, and it'll it'll be fine the next session. But it wasn't like that. So, you know, whenever we we look at DRS, and I think we'll start before we go into the Aston Martin one, we just should say how powerful it is on the Red Bull. You know, the drag reduction is very powerful. But the thing is, with that drag reduction, there's a downforce reduction, and that downforce is the load. Um, the downforce and the drag is the load that's on that rear flap because, you know, the, 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 the flap generates downforce. Um, it's making the, the main plane of the wing work. Um, but because of that, there's obviously drag on it as well. So um, it's one of those sort of situations where I think that Aston Martin had a new wing in Baku because it is a very high-speed straight. And the geometry of the DRS is quite important for that drag and downforce relationship on the flap. So I think they may have just stitched itself up a little bit in their their um, analysis of the the force they needed out of the actuator and the geometry of the pivot and etc. Because that's all really critical to make sure you got the the load in the actuator to overcome the the downforce and drag load that's on the flap. And as I say, with a new wing, sometimes you know it doesn't work, and you can't make it work in the garage because to create that downforce and load, uh, you need to be on the track. And it's all, again, that depends on exactly what speed you go across the, the DRS activation line. 
um, you know, if you go across there at 200 kilometers an hour, you've got X amount of drag and downforce in that flap. Go to 220, it's, it's quite a lot more load. So one of the sort of situations, the DRS lines keep moving around a little bit. And I think they did in, in Baku as well. It was, a, it was a bit later before you could press the DRS. Um, so the load goes, the load, the load climbs up dramatically. So um, I think they probably just screwed up a little bit on the, on the, as I say, the geometry of the, the flat position against the actuator position and the force that the actuator could, could generate. Because it's not just, it's not just a simple thing here. You know, the, the flap does does have a lot of load on it and that's that's what shuts it you know whenever you see the, the the flap snap shut you just take the load off the actuator and it just snaps shut so we've seen a, a few occasions where we saw the the flaps flutter on a few cars and that's sort of because they get the flap geometry to go past its its aerodynamic center i suppose you might call it it's it's not creating enough enough force downwards to want to just shut immediately and it's creating a little bit more lift on the way up. So, you know, it just sits there fluttering aerodynamically. And normally what happens with that is you just have to reduce the opening by, you know, a millimeter or two millimeters or three millimeters. There's little spacers in there in some of the actuators so that you can just precisely set it. So you still keep just a positive load on it, touch a positive load on the flap. So the minute you take the, the force off the actuator, it snaps itself shut. And um, we've seen the consequences if it doesn't. So it's it's not just a black and white, let, you know, let's press this switch and we get X drag reduction. It's not like that. It's a lot of mechanism, a lot of work to get the mechanism to work correctly. It's an interesting point you make, actually, about the DRS zone changing. And potentially that might have changed things a little bit. It shows how small differences can have an impact. And it certainly seemed to be a fractionally intermittent problem in that also the way the car was bumping the way uh, the way the wing was was slightly vibrating it wasn't kind of the the extreme flapping that we saw say from red bull at times um i think uh, last year it was we saw that but it just shows how these little tiny things can be uh, can be what set it off and i guess it's a nightmare to chase in that scenario as well because they had it in free practice but then they're into part for may from the start of friday qualifying so then you're trying to troubleshoot it with a massive limitation on what you can actually fix well again as i say the big thing is that it it's fine you have the problem during a session and it goes into park fermi the fia will allow you to fix problems um, as long as you use the same type of componentry the problem is with the rear wing um the, the drs system a you can't simulate it in the garage anyway because you you can't put the load into it b you can't you can't recreate the bumps so you're not you know you're you've got a problem you know you got a problem but to actually simulate it is nigh on impossible. So I, I would have thought a huge amount of work would have gone on back at the base on solving that problem. Now, however they got, you know, got over it, they got over it some way or another. And that is, you know, it's two or three tenths of a second a lap, but it's not only that, you know, that you can sort of live with. It's just the fact that as your tool to pass somebody, that's what Formula One has become. So whenever you come up, if you don't have DRS and you come up behind somebody, you know, you've got no benefit no no mechanism to actually get past there unless you just unless you leave it to the driver should i say maybe that's a, the wrong thing to do maybe we should we should have a boost button or a something button but um yeah i would, I would say there have been a lot of analysis going on back at the factory um I, I without being able to do something because of the park fermi rules i'm not quite sure how you fix it but um again you know the the, the thing about the rear wing in the main race the car will be going slower by a significant amount than what it was in qualifying, especially across that DRS line. 
and you could only be talking, you know, five kilometers difference, and the, the wing would work. And just uh, with uh, in qualifying, new tires flat out, you know, giving it big beans, um, the, the speed's just up that bit, the load's just up that bit, the actor is just not big enough. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it sort of semi-fixed itself to a certain extent. And it's an interesting point you make as well about fixing the problem because you can fix something if it's broken and the FI will come around and you'll say to them, look, this is broke. I mean, Verstappen's hole in his side pod, that's a very easy thing to prove is broken in order to be given the, the go-ahead to change it. But something like that that's maybe not working as it should isn't actually broken. There was another example actually with Alpine because the reason Esteban Ocon had to start both races from the pit lane was because they were seeing too much plank wear. They upgraded the car they'd had very limited running in p1 with both cars because gasly had his problem and then ocon was kept to the garage while they were checking it over and so all you can do if you want to tackle it that way is is break part for, for me because yes it's gone wrong but it's it's not something's failed you've just got it wrong well yeah it's a very fine line i mean i, I did watch the the alpine bouncing a bit and it was quite high frequency um, bouncing it was involved. It wasn't. I wouldn't have classified it as porpoising. I'd have classified that as bouncing because it was, it was such high frequency. It, in my book, it wasn't an aerodynamic um, stalling problem because that is quite low frequency. It's whenever the car starts hitting the ground, and as you say, the plank was wearing, so that's because the car was hitting the ground. And once you start that oscillation and getting out of control, it just gets worse. So, you know, it's one of these things, if you've ever... If you've ever had a, a wheel out of balance in the motorway and you get to 70 and it starts shaking, you've got to go a lot slower before it stops shaking again and, and get back on the throttle. It might not shake till after you do 65 or something, but you probably have to go down to 50 miles an hour to, to get the shaking to stop, and then you can accelerate back up again. So it's whenever it gets out of control, it's just one of those sort of situations where you've got to, you've got to do something dramatic, and obviously they had to uh, do a setup change to, to, stop that, to stop that happening. Well, and coming back to Aston Martin, the positive thing for them is they won't need a wing of that sort for a, a little bit, given we're going to Miami next and Imola and Monaco and Spain. So we're we're not at these uh, these low downforce tracks for a while. But as you say, that work that was going on at the factory over the weekend will be going on, I suspect, now in terms of trying to work out if there's something they have got particularly wrong or it was just a minor thing because it might be a lesson they need to learn for the future. Yeah, well, every day in every way, you know, as I say, it's, uh, it's all a learning curve. And, and again, you know, the car, as I, I did an article a few weeks ago, I'm sure hopefully the people that listen to this have read it, about how the, the rear wing and the beam wing and the diffuser all can work together. Um, I've seen some other articles saying it's rubbish, but I don't believe it is because you know, there's no way you can get that much of a drag reduction by just the wing. So the whole thing works together. And as I say, that's, you know, the car the car they've got now is a competitive car. So it's it's right up there. Maybe not just quite as good as the Red Bull yet, but it's right up there as far as loads is concerned from all the componentry. You know, whenever you look at a car at the back of the grid, um, it's it's there for a reason. It's just not got the, the performance. But the Aston Martin is there, so the loads on all the componentry are are maximised. You know, they're doing a good job with it. So it's it's a whole new learning curve for the group of people at um, at Aston Martin as well, because it's the first time they've had a car that's you know right in the thick of that leading bunch and they are right in the thick of that leading bunch well that's the impressive thing as Fernando Alonso said after the race they've had a tricky weekend a troubled weekend and still came away with fourth and seventh place so that's saying something about how well that team's doing
Well, we've got an interview with Mike Crack, the Aston Martin team principal, coming up. And one of the topics we discuss is the move into the team's new factory that's adjacent to its current site, opposite the main entrance to Silverstone. And Gary, of course, you know all about the old factory. You were there when it was being built. You were the technical director when uh, when you moved in. I guess what an amazing story that place has had, given the success Jordan had with some great cars coming out of there and some amazing achievements. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a bit disappointed it's going to get knocked down. I have to say that because I would have thought that would have been quite a good memento and you could have turned it into a, a, a nice Aston Martin um, sort of heritage museum. It would have taken, taken it through the, the range of cars that Jordan had, Midland, you know, all that spiker lot. They they had thought about doing something like that, but I think it came down to uh, the, the, the financial realities of kind of redoing the building and they were told oh, it was a lot cheaper just to take it down and do a new one, which isn't necessarily a reason to not preserve it, but I think that was their rationale. They did have a similar idea to you, but I think they decided because of the bottom line not to do it. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, everything's understandable. As I say, you know, whenever Jordan started up and we were in a, a lock-up in, in Silverstone Circuit, um, it was a, you know, had a little mezzanine where, where three of us worked to design the car. And uh, downstairs, we, you know, we had a, a race shop where the, th- the car was built along with the former 3000 cars that we were running at the same time. So it was all a bit, a bit different. And, the, you know, the new factory coming along at that same point in time was a, a massive um you know, a massive change for us. And we had we had one guy who looked after that, a guy called Bosco Quinn. Unfortunately, he, he lost his life uh, in a car accident in the December of the year that, that we, we moved into the factory. So a bit, uh, a bit sad because of that, but he was a good guy. You know, he sort of managed it and he, he was very good at managing and, and making the numbers work as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of those sort of situations where, again, I'm a, bit, a little bit sad see the factory go however um i will hopefully get up there to see the new one when it's being opened um but i just have to you know wait and see if i get an invite or not uh it's one of those sort of situations i think moving into a new factory is is one thing it needs a huge amount of planning because it's going to be so different you know whereas in the factory you've got now you know you walk from one end of it to the other and you'll meet 10 people factory that's bigger you walk from one end of it to the other and you're out of breath you know, that's the problem with it. It's so huge. And it's a bit like Toyota. You know, they had, whenever they were working in their place in Germany, they had bicycles to get from A to B because it was so far to get from A to B. Um, and it's just it's a different, whole different environment. Sometimes people adapt to that very well, very easily, very quickly. Um, and other times you don't. So it need to be very well managed, just that, that step across to, to saying, right, we're in the new factory now. The old one's gone. This is a whole new working environment and you know, everybody needs to buy into that. So it's not going to be an easy task. Yeah, they're going to be fully moved in by the end of this month is the plan. That's into the main building. There's still a wind tunnel building that's going to be a bit further away. That's next year, but that transition's happening. I've been fortunate enough to have a tour around the factory while it was still being built late last year and actually their launch was there so i had another look at it uh, then but yeah we're definitely uh, we're definitely planning to get you to have a proper poke round i think they didn't want you there while it was being built because you probably point out some of the things they've 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 got wrong but uh, how difficult is it to manage a transition like that these are huge teams and obviously there's a a pretty high intensity championship going on it's a run of something like five races in six weekends and they're trying to make this move i know a lot of the personnel don't travel to races in fact the majority of personnel don't travel to races but they're still you know head to the grindstone really trying to just push stuff through so it's got to be really hard to manage something like that. i guess it's just pain you've got to take 
Well, yeah, it's pain you've got to take at some point in time. But actually, it sort of it benefits you a little bit if there is four or five races in a row because the cars nowadays don't always come back to the factory. You know, when they were when they were two weeks apart, you you were always getting back to the factory with the truck and unloading it and doing your rebuilding that in the factory. Now they don't; they stay away. So uh, that actually helps that situation. So I think I would think it'd be a you know a race team go away for a certain race. The cars won't come back for for three or four, maybe five races, and they come back to the new factory, which will be open and ready to go. So, the only thing will change will be the postcode. So it's, it's you know, I think that makes it a little bit easier, but it's still a massive, massive task. I'd like to go back. One of the stories I've had about new factories is um, when the McLaren Technologies uh, building was being done. Uh, Ron Dennis, my uh, well, distant sort of relative by marriage, uh, was looking after the services and he um he would visit with Ron once a week and sort of go through everything that was as it was going in and once got there and all these electrical switches were on the wall where Ron wanted them but the little screws that hold the the switch on um the 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 head of the screw didn't line up they were were all different angles you see so I mean there's 10,000 of them or something like this so um Ron asked for them all to be like, to put the same same direction, you see. So next week, they did it all. All the guys went around and put these screws all so they looked the same. They put them all horizontal, which they thought was quite a nice idea. So the week after, then Ron visited again with with uh, my my family friend and um, said, oh, yeah, it's okay, I'm happy enough now, but by having the slot horizontal, it'll catch the dust. I'd liked it to be vertical, but, you know, it's okay it being horizontal, but it'll just catch dust. So, yeah. New factories, new factories always bring something with it. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be some uh, some details that'll be ironed out. Perhaps not quite that that extreme, but it does show the level Formula One teams go to. And it's interesting because they've talked about how it's a smart factory insofar as they want to track absolutely everything they're doing in terms of the production and process, and also track every penny because of the cost cap. So the idea is that this, I mean, this is the first new ground-up Formula 1 factory that's been built for a long time, that it should be perfectly tailored for the cost-cap era. But I guess it won't be until everyone's in there living it, working in it, that they discover whether it really works. Because sometimes there's great ideas that should work and there's always a little bit of uh, of kind of snagging that goes on with these new things and, and things that you have to slightly change, even though the big plan is really on the money. Yeah, the, the, the big thing you've got to remember through it all it's that racing car that you see on a Sunday with four wheels on it that counts. All the rest of it is is a means to an end. And just don't take the focus off the racing car. They're doing a good job at the minute focusing on it. They've had a very competitive season. They've had pretty good reliability through these these uh, first few races. So just don't take your eye off the ball because it's so easy to get excited about what colour the paint's going to be in the in the uh, gearbox shop or something. Uh, but forget that. Just make sure the gearbox is built. Make sure the gearbox is built correctly. Make sure the, you know the car is built correctly and designed correctly and, and the rest will look after itself. Well, that's something that that team historically has done very, very well and hopefully it will carry through into the new factory. This year has been a remarkable one for Aston Martin, which has leapt to second in the Constructors' Championship with a run of podiums for Fernando Alonso. Team principal Mike Crack has been a key part of the team's recent rise, having joined in March last year. Prior to that, he was the head of BMW Motorsport, but he also has a huge amount of hands-on motorsport engineering experience, stretching all the way back to his first taste of F1 with Sauber after joining the team in 2001. 
So let's hear from the man at the helm of F1's most talked about team. Well, I'm pleased to be joined by Mike Crack, the team principal of Aston Martin, someone who's overseeing a team that's having a very exciting time at the moment. But I wanted to start off more with you than the team, because you come from a a very interesting background for an F1 team principal. You're an engineer, basically. So you're not one of these team principals who those working on the car might say, oh, he's got no idea. You've been a race engineer in Formula One, for example. How beneficial do you think that experience you've got, that knowledge is in terms of the job you're doing because you'll understand it better than some of your equal numbers in the paddock. Yes, you, you do understand uh, the engineering side maybe better than someone who is not an engineer. That That is clear. But I think it is very important that you are not uh, thinking that you are the best of these engineers. Yeah, uh, There are a lot of experts in the engineering uh, departments um, and uh, they are, in, in everything they do, they are much more advanced than whatever I, I would ever be able to learn so it is more to have to, to maintain a global understanding of uh, what makes performance where is it important to spend um, and understanding what what is the next thing to, to do now obviously it's nice if you can if you listen into a race strategy meeting or if you look at the run plan and you understand what is going on but i think it's very important that you not get involved uh or dwelled into it, yeah, because as an engineer, you always have the tendency, ah, you know, I know better anyway, so I would do it like this. So I think it's very important to to, to trust these people, to trust uh, um, and try to understand what, what, what they do. Um, and I think having done that job before, it is much, much easier also to understand that everything goes in the right direction or that uh, we are just trying to invent things. So, uh, yeah, all in all, I think it's good, but I think there is also benefits if uh, in the team principal role if you have done something else before. So maybe not in the engineering domain, but maybe commercial, legal or whatever. I guess it's a question of almost speaking the same language as those on the engineering side and understanding, having a, a kind of sympathy for what, what they're doing and, and really grasping it. So you, you can actually, like you say, you're not doing the job, but you can at least understand that and then plug that into the rest of the team and what you're trying to do. Yeah, it's. I think it's mainly a question of respect. You know, you you know you know how hard that job is that they are doing. Um, uh, be it the performance engineer, be it the race engineer, be it the strategy. Uh, having done most of these things, you, you understand that it is really a hard job. Or be it in the garage and the electronics side and all that. So it's it's a matter of respecting uh, how hard it is, uh, and uh, then also, as you said, understanding that uh, are we moving in the right direction. And uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's more uh, a discussion and guidance rather than uh, instructions, I would say. And looking back through your career, it's quite an interesting shape to it, if you like. You had your first F1 career, ra- uh, rose to the rank of, uh, of chief engineer at, uh, at BMW Sauber. And then you had that little sort of interregnum before you were working with BMW. You had a couple of years, just seemed to be engineering in F3, which just interested me that you kind of did the F1 bit, then... It's not really grassroots, but it's just sort of a step to a slightly lower level and perhaps a more pure kind of race engineering and then back into the various BMW roles rising to head of motorsports. So if you just sort of talk me through kind of how that whole arc happened, because your your whole career arc is quite unusual in that regard. <laughs> yes, this is true. Uh, but I had never done Formula 3 before. So uh, um, I, always, I always thought that F3 is one of the purest forms of racing. 
you know, when it's when it's really about racing only. And uh, when you have done, uh, you know, I was uh, a performance engineer for many years at at, at Sauber, then uh, race engineer, then chief engineer, and uh, then uh, um, I wanted to slow down because I had a family. Uh, and I wanted to see what, what other what other possibilities are there. And when this Formula Three possibility came, uh, I was just you know it was an emotional decision because it, it is really just racing. Yeah, you you were just racing and uh, concentrate on nothing else. And uh, they were quite interesting years. Also to go back, you know, a couple of levels because you realize how spoiled you were before. You know, Formula One, everything is pre-arranged. Um, uh, if it, uh, there's a printer not working, there's someone coming and doing it. You know, in F3 we we want to you want to print. We don't have a printer, so we have to go and get one. You know, uh, so you drive out uh, and, and, and get one. So I think it's good to, to be also be back. You know, both feet back on the ground. You know, and uh, uh, go back to a more more basic form of racing. But it's very enjoyable. So uh, and it's very competitive also. You know, uh, very often people think. F1 is, is, is the, the absolute highlights, but uh, uh, also in the lower categories, there are good people working, there are high-level engineers and uh, good drivers, you know, so it is very, less in the spotlight, but it is very intense and very, very uh, interesting racing. And I guess over the years with BMW, as you rose up, well, rose the ranks, you're in a pretty senior position from the start, but to, to run that, I guess that's when you start to bring in other aspects to your role that are on the non-engineering side. And that's an interesting thing in itself, because I think there'd be a lot of people who work on the engineering side who wouldn't be so interested in that side of things or so capable. So it seems quite remarkable to me to, in that space of time, go from the side you're working on to be able to run a upwardly mobile F1 team. So how did you start to phase in more of these? <laughs> yeah, I didn't like it either in the beginning, to be 100% honest with you. But, uh, you know, there there is there is often, you know, if you... It, it, it's such such steps come from opportunities you know someone is leaving and uh, you, you 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 can get that role or, or you are asked could could you think about doing that you know uh, uh, finance legal driver contracts and all these kind of things when you are coming from an engineering background in the beginning you just do not want to hear anything about it but then uh, uh, i think it's also a matter of of how how you how you mature and how you grow you know you, you start to think you know there's also other interesting fields and uh, um, to be honest, I, it is not something that um, I, I would I was particularly particularly seeking of, you know, to 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 get to know it. But then, you know, the more you work into this, you see, you get a better understanding of how of how the whole aspect of racing is working. Not only the engineering part, but also the funding part, the the contracts that have to be in place, the media uh, that I was not in touch basically for 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 the first twenty years. I had no 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 touch with with any any kind of media, um, and you get you get a much much better picture of how motor racing or Formula One especially is working. Um, so that that yeah, uh, and doing that over the years, you know, understanding more and more how other areas out of engineering work in motorsport gives you makes you yeah gives you maybe the possibilities to then do something that I'm doing now. And looking as a whole at the growth of the team, obviously you don't have a kind of from the start view of this because you were part of that expansion you joined about 12 months ago. 
But what do you make of the way it's expanding? How do you go about what you might call controlled expansion? Because it's very easy to spend money and recruit people and build things, but it's slightly more challenging to do that in a properly controlled, measured way and keep oversight of it. So how, how difficult is it to do that? And how effective do you think the way the team has grown in recent times has been? Yeah, um, that, that, is, that is a very, very good point. Um, uh, you, you, need to, you need not to grow for the sake of growing. Uh, you know, obviously, through, through benchmarking where, where others are or what size these teams are having, what kind of infrastructure, what infrastructure they are having. But you must also be aware that this comes from a, a non-cost cap history, yeah, where you could just develop the company the way you, you thought it was the right. Now we have a bit more restriction and we need to see where are the right areas where we should spend. Um, cost cap has obviously led to a much more centered cost engineering uh, focus. So the company develops a little bit more in that area. Then you have to say, okay, we have to make steps in performance. Uh, um, we have to develop our own wind tunnel. Um, so it is all things that um, you, you, you really carefully evaluate to, to keep also a balance. Because if you would say, for example, tomorrow I, I employ 200 more people in the technical development and they come with up, upgrades and upgrades and upgrades and your production cannot manage or cannot follow, you, you have not really achieved anything because you have spent all, all that money on development, but you cannot bring the parts to the car. So you need always have a fine balance between uh, development, production, racing uh, and the, the supportive functions like uh, be it finance, be it uh, commercial. So. It, it has to be uh, a controlled growth. I think you said it, yeah. Um, and they're doing it careful and not rushing it. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Is having that top-down view almost the key part of your role in that every department will always want more for their own bit, won't they? Because they'll have the very much the local view to do their bit as well as possible. But that connecting it up and being able to balance up, actually, it's no good expanding design without expanding production with the same amount and balancing up. So is that very high on the list of things that you can bring to the team with that top-down view? Yeah, it would be easy to say yes. But um, we must not forget, you know, we have a, a lot of people here that have been with this team for very long. And uh, they, they are very well aware that uh, it needs to be balanced. It needs to be in balance. Uh, and they have demonstrated this capability for many years before that, you know, before I even was dreaming about joining the team. So uh, it is not that the, the technical area comes around the corner and says, I need everything. Yeah, they are very well aware that if they if they uh, grow, that we need growth on the other side, and uh, it is not at all you know everything for me, and the others have to get get it sorted. So it is really a, a teamwork, and these are also decisions that are not taken by one person. We discuss this, uh, uh, taking into account the needs of all the departments. You know, sometimes you say maybe we can become more efficient in that area instead of uh, increasing the headcount. And in other areas, we, we have to say we are desperate. We need, we need, need to, to strengthen. So these are common, these are discussions that are taking, uh, taking place. They are taken together. Uh, 
and uh, I'm fortunate there to be surrounded by very, very sensible people that uh, see the big picture instead of only seeing their own department. And obviously one of the other important things that's been injected into the team this year is Alonso. Obviously he's joined Lance Stroll. What does a driver like Alonso bring, particularly off track? We all know what he can do on track and he's a driver who's surrounded in myth and legend. But in terms of what he brings to kind of almost your domain, I know car performance is the kind of outward manifestation of it, but the, the wider team, what does he offer? How long do we have? <laughs> um, uh, Fernando is fantastic. Yeah, You have... Uh, you know the, the driving. You said, "Okay, leave the, let's leave the driving on the side." Um, the way the, the 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 state of mind, the positive, the positiveness, the attitude that he brings, the, the pushing, but also not like being blind and and egoistic, but you know being sensible and understanding that we are on a growing path. That we are we cannot do everything that immediately, and. He's, he's very sensible in, in understanding that uh, and pushes the areas that need pushing most. Uh, as soon as one is done, he comes with the next one. Uh, and this is also one of the reasons why we wanted to have a driver of this, of this caliber to push us, uh, to push us into the next and to continue pushing us. Um, and uh, uh, so, so Next to that, we have also the situation that he, he's, he's just delivering. He's just delivering on track. And uh, you have always the feeling that everything is just under control. And uh, to be honest, also, I think there is also a general belief in our team that, you know, the car will not go faster than this. Yeah, we know that this is where the car is. And for a team, this is extremely important that you have no doubt in these kind of things. So we have blind trust there. And... Uh, we need to work together that Fernando has the blind trust in us and then it will be a great collaboration. And looking at what you're doing now, this team is having phenomenal success. There's a five-year plan that you're in. The, I think this is year three, isn't it? It starts from the, the rebranding of the, the team. It feels from the outside like you're almost a little bit ahead of schedule. But how would you see it? Is this actually where you expected to be at this point? And does that reflect the, the level of ambition of this team? That actually it's not a surprise that you're being so competitive at this stage. Yeah, I think, you know, if we had this conversation last year, we would have said, you know, we were behind plan, you know. So the, 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 the thing is, you know, the, the progress that you make uh, is judged on results and the results is relative to others. Yeah, if others improve more, if others improve less. And also you had, we had uh, the disruption with the regulations where uh, we fell back, I think, uh, a little bit. So uh, all in all, I think you need to, you need to be careful to see this really to zoom out on on on, on progress and, uh, and and see over a period that you have to define uh, have I really progressed or not and you, you need to be careful not to factor in single events like uh, like Bahrain was a very good event but you know it's maybe a peak to a peak on the high and maybe we have a peak on the low this weekend you know so uh, I think you need to be careful not to be taken away by that um, um, it, it, it was important for us to make a step because um, Formula One is you are just measured by results. Uh, we finished seven in the first year of Aston Martin, we finished seven in the second year of Aston Martin. This is not progress, yeah? And we need to finish higher up than that. Um, now, where we are going to finish, I think the season will tell us, but it was important for us that we make a, a step in, uh, in competitiveness. Um, we have signs that we have done. But uh, for me, it's important that we confirm this over the next two, three, four races to see where we really are, because we also saw in Bahrain some teams were struggling and maybe sold themselves a bit under their real value. 
and th this we will see uh, over the next weeks that are coming. One of the things that's clearly worked during this expansion is, as Dan Fallows referred to in Bahrain, as well as bolstering all, all this extra resource and capacity, it does seem to have retained that old traditional overachieving ability that goes back right to the start of the team, 30 years. And that seems to me almost the most positive thing, the most positive success about this expansion, that you have somehow managed to build on that strength. While it's not a small team anymore, but it still seems to have that capacity and that knack. How do you think this has been preserved to allow the team to be in this position? Um, I think it's quite simple. Um, I think it has been preserved because the new people that arrived are very, very respectful for the people that have been there. I think Dan said it already. He, he was, he, he, he's, uh, he's seeing a lot of talent in Team Silverstone when he joined. And it, was, it is maybe more a, a way of, of giving confidence to the people, guiding them that, uh, to get the maximum out of them. Uh, and preserving, preserving these, the, 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 the lots of good people that we were already having and moving on with them preserves also this DNA or preserves also this characteristic uh, that Team Silverstone was always having. So I think it is very, very important because this is also a fragile dynamic. You know, you, you really need to, to, to make sure that you preserve what you are having there um, and, and build on it and move it to the next level and, and, and not losing that. Yeah? So uh, I think big credit to, to, to the new arrivals, you know, not to just clean everything off, but to spend the time in looking at what we are having and using this resource, uh, this strong resource in, uh, in making, making better cars. How big an opportunity is there in terms of the fact you are moving into a new facility? Obviously the first building you'll be moving into may, I think, still the plan. You can set that up for the size Formula One team should be under the cost cap. There's been talk about how it's the first smart factory, which is a big part of trying to maximise the efficiency, try and squeeze everything out of that that financial resource you've got so although that's massively disruptive to the team it's also quite a big opportunity isn't it are you fairly happy with the way that you've managed to oversee this move i know it's not quite happened yet but the building of the new factory there's a lot of distraction there but the team's still doing its job you're going to move in presumably relatively seamlessly so do you feel that you've been able to take all that opportunity while minimizing the disruption yeah it, it, it it's, it's a big challenge, you know. You're describing it, it, it fairly, fairly well because uh, there is obviously a risk, uh, and just moving factory does not mean that you're making faster cars. You know, you need to create the opportunities for people to interact better, for for logistics to improve, for creating a better team dynamic. But it is not just a move that will make it happen. The move in the first place is just a disruption, and uh, I think. You, know, you need to minimize the disruption by being well prepared and well organized so that you can do a smoothless transition or smoothless it will not be to be 100 percent honest i think uh, there, there will be a little bit of uh, of hiccups coming for sure that we cannot anticipate now but there is great organizational work already done at this time you know to make this as, as smooth as possible um, but it will i mean i think i think we would be naive to think it will not impact us at all but on the medium term, uh, I think you know it's it's quite clear that we will benefit from being together in this big new facility. Do you feel like you're being quite a disruptive Formula One team? By which I mean, clearly the big teams are quite worried about you. you. Hear Red Bull making comments about how your car's last year's Red Bull, and it clearly isn't. You can see 
plenty of differences. Yeah, there may be conceptual similarities, but that's the case with many cars. So what do you think of all that? And do you think that that's just a, a sign that people are taking this team very, very seriously as not just one that's snapping at their heels now, but that could be leading the way pretty soon if they're not careful? Yeah. To be honest with you, um, you know, we our goal is not to be disruptive. You know, we want to do our thing. You know, we want to do the Aston Martin way. We want to do our way. And uh, we are not we are not focusing on what others are doing and really what others are saying. Um, it would have been easy now to, 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 to speak, you know, to give, to give an answer to all these comments that we had. But um, we don't want to do that. You know, we, didn't, we, we always wanted to do our own thing, uh, develop our car, develop our team the way we think it is right. And not just because F1 ecosystem expects this from you or expect this from you. So we want to keep our identity. We, we, are, we are proud of what we have achieved. Uh, I think we need to, you mentioned it before, we need to preserve the DNA of Team Silverstone uh, and then move on from there and do our, our bit and our thing. And um, it is nice that people speak about us, um, um, but it doesn't change anything in our approach, to be honest. Is it irritating in any way? Because these comments are out there and they're not really very easy to back up, are they? Because you don't have to look very long at the car to see how different it actually is. So that was a little bit frustrating, surely, in Bahrain to have so many jokes, I think, as uh, Helmut Marco suggested it was about that. It shows you there's a bit of a nerve touch there, but it, it's not through copying, certainly. Yeah, I mean, it is very important that, uh, you know, you have to have respect for what we have done. Yeah, um, And the only annoying bit that f for me that, you know, is the perception of, you know, if you have comments like that is, you know, it's, it's, it's not very respectful for all the work that has been done from, from, from all our people, you know. Uh, other than that, it, it doesn't really touch me, to be honest, you know. As I said, we want to do our thing. And if they speak about us, it is because we are there. Uh, we, are, we are alive, let's say. Uh, and uh, we should not try, we should try not to get uh, dis uh, distracted by any of these comments. Uh, maybe that is also the target of them, you know. But uh, again, you know, we focus on what, what we want to do and uh, leave these comments for what they are. Okay, well, thanks very much, Mike Crack. It's been great to have a chat to you. Thank you very much. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in Formula One, please do send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on absolutely anything. F1 today, F1 in the past, some technical aspect of the cars that you've always wanted to know the answer to. You can send a written email to podcasts at therace.com or if you prefer, record a voice note and send it to us, making sure you let us know who you are and we'll play that on on the show. We've got two questions this week and the first is from Jay Menon who has a great question that's all about the fusion of car and driver. Jay says, in sports car racing, some drivers are known as masters in being able to be very efficient on fuel usage while maintaining lap time. I remember an interview with Alan McNish who was talking about how fantastic Tom Christensen was at doing this. How is this possible? Are they just able to maintain more forward momentum through corners, meaning they'd need less energy to get back up to speed, or is it a totally different concept? Does this skill apply in F1? Are, they some are there some drivers who can extract similar performance while using less fuel? I would imagine this would be a great benefit during a race, since you'll be able to underfuel a car. Have you worked with any drivers in your career who possess this skill? So it's everything about 
fuel saving while maintaining the pace. And I guess at the heart of that question is the fact that fuel saving doesn't just mean going slowly, which is what people often think. Yeah, it doesn't just mean going slowly. I mean, there's always a compromise, but you will get two different real real drivers, I suppose you might call it. And um, one of them is one that arrives at, you know, breaks at the last minute, breaks, you know, 6G, everything he can to stop the car, turns the car 90 degrees and nails the throttle. And that's the worst driver on fuel. You get the other ones who, a bit like Jensen Button has always had always been, you know, he, he lets the car roll through the corner. Um, he, he will break fractionally earlier, um, but he'll carry that little bit more speed into the corner and, and a little bit more mid, mid-corner speed. He needs the car well-balanced to do that. Um, and he won't just stomp on the throttle. It'll just be a, a progressive throttle because the stomping on the throttle uses fuel and the car can't accelerate any faster than it, than it can accelerate. So you might as well get your, your throttle pedal trace to sort of follow your acceleration. Um, you know, you want to accelerate as fast as possible, but sometimes having it flat out it doesn't mean the car accelerates any faster. So you have to just look after that. And also the fact that you can, if you lift a little bit earlier, if you imagine that last, you know, 20 meters or something, the engine's at maximum RPM. It's producing maximum power, maximum drag against the car. So you're using you're using a lot of fuel. So it's one of those sort of situations where if you just ease the throttle that little bit earlier, allow the allow the aerodynamics to take the initial braking, just slow the car down that fraction, um, and then roll more corner speed uh, through the corner, um, then you will save fuel automatically, which is what you want to do. You just, you just save the car completely, brakes the whole thing. So it's not just one one thing you're trying to do whenever you're talking about fuel saving. You know, fuel saving's part of it, but your car saving, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. You can save a lot of stuff by just not being the last last man on the brake pedal. You know, and, and the risk level drops a little bit as well because, you know, you less chance if you just flat spot on tires, all that sort of stuff, less chance you're locking a wheel in and going off because of it. So just being a bit more gentle to the car is a good way to go. And, you know, we've had drivers in the past that were, were capable of doing it um, or we've had two you know different drivers, let's say, in the team and one of them would use lots and lots of fuel uh, or more fuel than the other one. And, and sometimes go slower as well. I think, you know, Andrea de Cesaris way back, Andrea de Cesaris and, and Bertram Gascia were were quite different in, in their approach to to using fuel. Bertram was always, you know, used fuel, used more fuel than Andrea. Andrea was a, I would call it a flowing driver. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't just use all the revs whenever you're changing gear, you know, just a bit earlier, because what's the point? You might as well just change it a little bit earlier, save the high revs, use the torque of the engine a little bit more. So it's just you know it's just that understanding of how to be how to be kind to the car, and that will automatically save you fuel, it'll save you brakes, it'll save risk, and it all it all adds up on a lap. So yeah, it's it's just it's just the sympathetic driver, I suppose you might call it. And our second question is from David Jenkins. It's on one of the big talking points of our time, I guess you could say, not just in F1, but in everything we're doing. David says, I'm new to F1. I'm loving it. And one of my main concerns with everything is sustainability. How do the current F1 technical regulations for cars encourage sustainability? And what is the relationship between this and performance? Obviously, there's grand ambitions, aren't there, Gary, in Formula One, net zero, 2030 and all that. And there's things they're trying to do. So 
I guess the question almost is how compatible it is with the activities of running a Formula One car, which fundamentally does consume things and is, in some ways, you could argue, futile, even though it is great and we love it. Yes, it's it's one of those sort of difficult things because what is Formula One, I suppose? I mean, it is a, it is a spectacle. Um, there's billions of people watch it, so it's you know something of enjoyment. Uh, if there's a good race going on, it's, it's great. The one thing that I suppose you, you look at is say uh, stopping the tire blankets or my book. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't stop the use of tire blankets immediately. I would reduce the amount of tire blankets because you don't need as many as what the teams have now. Uh, with just the amount of time they can be on for because that's just using power. And I, I would reduce the uh, the amount of tires you've got um, because it's one of those sort of situations. There's there's nearly far too many tires. Now, you can look at that and say, okay, well, that'll stop the cars running on the track, so the spectacle will be gone as well. I'm sure you could come up with a solution to that. You know, that we saw in, in Baku, we saw that the hard tire on um, Nico Holtenberg's car and uh, Ocon would do the whole race. And that is actually, in the Pirelli range, I think that was the medium tyre, so that's the middle middle of their range. Um, the, the, the softest tyre in Baku was their softest tyre. So, uh, you know, the tyres the tires haven't got a big enough step between them, in my book, to sort of make sure you can actually understand that the, the soft tyre at Baku should be a qualifying tyre. It should, you know, there should be a one-lap special um, and if you if you don't get it on the first lap, then that tire's dead. But you should have a very limited amount of them, so it forces the driver to put in that one banzai lap. And then the race again, the same thing because you've had more spread between the tires. You 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 end up having to write a rule that says you've got to do so many laps on a set of tires. So you you could end up with less tires, but more demanding very quickly. And um, I think you could you could find a solution to it all, but sustainability, you know, it is it is very very difficult to know what sustainability really means. It's one of these sort of situations where I think as long as you can see what you've got today, what you need to do, to, what you've got to use today to achieve a certain goal, and you can step it down a little bit tomorrow, then you're going in the right direction. I, I don't think it should be like a you know, a light switch going on and off. I think it has to be looked at logically, taking positive steps consistently. And again, it's the same old deal. You know, the, the car starts at the, the start line. Um, we've had the 100 kilogram, now it's 106 kilograms of fuel, I think, you can put into it. The cars don't really use that in the race, to be honest. So why not have the, the, ma- the, mass, the maximum fuel load that the car can carry less and, uh, and increase the electrical energy? Because... Electrical energy in the car itself comes free because you haven't generated it, you haven't recharge it yourself. Um, so you're you're getting something for nothing if you were to cut the, the fuel load down to eighty kilograms and the energy up by twenty percent. You know you wouldn't see it as a spectator, but it would be less fuel used and, and less you know, less emissions. So there's ways of doing everything, but I think I think Formula One stands in its own way of a lot of this stuff. You know between the FIA, the teams, and Formula One. They never seem to be able to work as a group to, to achieve something. They're always fighting each other. The interesting thing is there are ways Formula One is tackling sustainability, partly in what it's doing, but also to impact the wider world. And a good example of that is the uh, the fuel 
plans for the future, sustainable fuels from 2026, and there's a plan to work towards sustainable synthetic fuels. We're already seeing that in Formula 2 and Formula 3 with Aramco's partnership to supply the fuel there that's uh, making big steps forward. But it's it's interesting because it's very easy to come up with great ideas like that. But what's really happening now is that's driving the technology. And if you want to have these fuels, they need to be performant. That's why it's about developing them in competition. Plus, you've, of course, got the challenge of if you want to have a sustainable synthetic fuel that's based on, say, carbon capture. Well, you need to drive the technology on that. You need to build up the infrastructure, which is what's happening to actually do that in volume, particularly if you want that to be supplying the world, if that's part of your solution. So that there's lots of things going on. Formula One's probably best served, less in terms of looking at the internal ways it can make improvements. Well, and that's fine. But actually, the, the outreach, the knock-on effect it can have on other things is perhaps its most powerful weapon. Yeah, one of the things, again, is trying to sort of group the races together, which they're obviously looking at doing for the future. You know, you, Azerbaijan, we had just had a race there in Baku. And then the next one's in Miami. And, you know, you rush around the world, and that's part of the problem. It's always difficult because, you know, if you group races too close together then, you know, the same public won't come and see the races. So it's a very, very fine line between it. But there there has to be some way. And it, it takes a lot of work to, to make it all work together somehow. But as I say, my thing to, to, to look at would really be make sure you take a step for, you know, next year from what is, is this year. It doesn't have to be a massive step, but as long as it's a step in the right direction, then you're doing the right thing. It doesn't have to be just change change the whole calendar so all the races just follow each other. Um, you can, quite simply, you can still just make sure that you place them a little bit more sympathetically to the, the travelling you've got to do. But we'll wait and see. I mean, it's it's, it's important, but it, it needs to be looked at carefully. Yeah, there's a big push in all areas, but it's one of those things that takes time. That's why it's net zero in 2030, which is still an ambitious plan. But every area is being looked at by Formula One, and that's within the technical regulations and in every other aspect of what it's doing. Well, if anybody else has a question about F1 technology, please do send it through to podcastsattherace.com. That's podcastsattherace.com. As simple as you like, as complicated as you like, try and stump Gary, although it's almost impossible to do that because he usually has some very interesting answer to offer. But no question is too stupid, no questions too clever, absolutely anything you want to know. Well, thanks as ever, Gary, for your insight. It's been great catching up with you. I should say happy 50th anniversary in F1, and here's to the next 50-odd years of that. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks ahead of the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix with more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.